This program is brought to you by the Forbes-featured Freedom Hub Health Plan, the alternative to overpriced and restrictive insurance. The Freedom Hub Health Plan is exactly what you need. By Frequency Medicine Associates, supporting health professionals and laypersons with safe and effective advanced telemedicine-like technology that can scan and help rebalance the root causes of stress and illness. By the Planet Lockdown film, which can be seen on the Freedom Hub's Rumble channel along with many great speakers. And by The Pavilion, a 21st century community hub that brings together many of the disruptive innovations featured by the Freedom Hub, including direct pay healthcare, farm-to-table dining, TED-like Freedom Hub talks, and more. Visit your-mp.com forward slash pavilion solution for details. Welcome to the Freedom Hub. It is the Liberty and Freedom podcast today. Um, for those of you who are new, you can visit our website. That's where all the information, our speakers, our channels are posted. And I will share that screen with you. It is go to your-mp.com. And when you get on the homepage, you will see you can click down on webinars. And that will take you to our wonderful page with the innovators and free thinkers who are coming up. And right down on the left, we have Wednesday's uh, podcast, which is Health Biz and Politics, Innovators and Disruptors in the Healthcare Field. And you can subscribe there. We, we recommend that. And then at least you'll get all the mailings. And then we also have um, on Thursday, our Freedom Hub Zooms. And below you will see write-ups on the people coming if you're interested and you will get emails to sign up. And down below are the channels where the videos are posted on afterwards, Rumble, BitChute, Brighteon, YouTube. Well, not YouTube so often, especially not today because they cancel us all the time as you're well aware. So let me stop that share. And we have, it's uh, heating up in the world today and I think it might be heating up on our Zoom today as well. Charlie, tell us about our guest and what's coming up here. Sure. Thanks, Jim. And welcome, Dr. Jones. Um, my, my, everyone has a best friend, I, I think, I would think, <laughs> in their young adult uh, lives. And mine was the late Brian Lloyd, an attorney in DC, where I was a, a lobbyist and I'm still a lobbyist. And on his nightstand, when we cleaned up his apartment, was this book right here. Uh, Jewish revolutionaries, uh, th their impact on world history. And, you know, as happens when folks are hanging out, um, arguing about big issues, um, you know, the impact of the Jews on history came up from time to time. And I, I think it's a topic one can't ignore if you really want to understand existence, humanity especially in the West, uh, we're taught in church, you know, the, the death of Jesus and the pogroms and uh, the success of the Jews and then controversies with the banksters and Hollywood. And now we have Kanye West um, refusing to apologize for his statements about who runs his music business. And Dr. Jones, you know, found this out when he was drummed out of a literary professorship at St. Mary's. And he founded Culture Wars magazine 
as a result to shine a light on the weakening of the Catholic Church in defending some staples of society, how you run a human culture. And it's political because politics connotes the Greek uh, poli and how we organize society and the elemental unit after the individual is the family. And tradition plays a strong role in that as do uh, you know, the traditions of peoples. And he's been a critic of the Catholic Church in its weakness of the defense of those institutions. And he's been honest to a fault on the history of the Jews in relation to the Catholic Church for the last 2000 years. Um, I think anyone looking into the attack on the family can't help but see the psychological propaganda imposed by the media and the entertainment world, of which my own family was a part 100 years ago. This is a book by Daniel Froman from 1936. One of my great, great uncles who were uh, part of the creation of Broadway. And when the Lusitania sank in 1915 on the masthead of the papers around the world, uh, after the Lusitania sunk, a thousand feared dead, was Vanderbilt Froman feared dead. That was a great uncle of mine. He brought Peter Pan over from England to America. And he and some other Jewish families, uh, I'm no longer Jewish because my grandfather decided to intermarry and we've kept the habit since then, which is kind of cool to be part Jewish and mostly not Jewish. So I get to be separate and apart at the same time kind of helps me be a helps me be a, an honest cop but you know my great uncle's death was exploited by Woodrow Wilson to get us into World War One and as a libertarian I, I'm not really too excited about you know the abuse of my family to get us into the uh, the first world war which was the worst decision in history that monster Woodrow Wilson and then you look at how our lives are being controlled by the vaccine passports that, that now are set up in half the states. The uh, woke investing that is limiting Wall Street with EKG investing, environments, uh, governance, and whatever else the acronym stands for. And then the, the programmable digital currency. How can you discuss the great reset uh, behavioral control scheme without discussing the banksters behind it? And if you're going to discuss the banksters, how can you not talk about the Rothschilds who started the bankster movement uh, 200 years ago? Well, Rothbard names names, and uh, Professor um, Jones mentions Rothbards in criticizing the neocons. And I think you know you would like this, Dr. Jones. It's uh, it's Shakespeare professor Cantor's book on teaching liberty via literature, and they're Rothbardians in that book. And finally. We have Armageddon confronting us with the neocons uh, jingoistically poking the bear in Russia with Ukraine. And what is Ukraine but possibly the old home of the Khazars from Arthur Kessler 13th tribe that Dr. Jones mentions in his book. Um, so with that long introduction, Dr. Jones, I wanted to get a few themes out there. You know, the family under attack, uh, our lives being controlled through this great reset conspiracy and, and Armageddon kind of threatening us with Ukraine. 
Uh, why don't you kind of, you know, present why folks should look at this book and, you know, after 20 minutes or so, stop whenever you want. We'll go to Q&A if that, if that works. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, you mentioned that I, I got uh, fired from uh, uh, college, uh, St. Mary's College. That's true. Uh, had nothing to do with the Jews. Uh, I got fired because of my stand on abortion. The feminists had taken over uh, the nuns, and the nuns who ran this college uh, turned it into a feminist institution, which called itself Catholic. And I arrived uh, in the middle of that uh, drama, uh, basically unaware, uh, even though I asked the question right before I got hired of the relationship between feminism and Catholicism. But it turns out that uh, you were right after all, because uh, if you fast forward to uh, this spring, uh, the when, as soon as the memo uh, got leaked, uh, that uh, Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned, uh, 140 Jewish organizations announced that abortion was a fundamental Jewish value. No one knew this in 1979, uh, which is uh, when I arrived at St. Mary's. Uh, six years earlier, the Supreme Court had handed down Roe versus Wade. And the only discussion about Roe at the time of Roe versus Wade was science and there was, uh, they would quote a gynecologist uh, by the name of Bernard Nathanson as a gynecologist. Well, he was, uh, but he was also a Jew. Uh, and he went on to follow the path of your, your ancestors. He converted to Catholicism. And then he wrote a memoir in which he said, if the American public had known that abortion was being promoted by a bunch of crazy Jews from Greenwich Village, they never would have gone along with it. Well, that's precisely the situation that I entered. I didn't know what was going on. I started a magazine because I thought there was disruption in the Catholic Church. And over a period of time, I wrote a number of articles. You know, you write one article, it enables you to write the, tech, the next article, and so on and so forth. And it started building this edifice where I'm trying to come to some understanding of what happened, the, the subversion of the Catholic Church that took place in, during my lifetime and led to the position where I got fired for, uh, for, for opposing abortion from a Catholic college. How could that happen? The answer is the Jewish subversion of our culture. And I didn't understand it uh, immediately. It took me years to figure this out. And the turning point came in around 2003 when I realized that uh, the drumbeat for war was going on again. One more war. I, it's the war uh, with Iraq had no possible benefit whatsoever for the people of the United States of America. It was clear that it was being fought for the interest of Israel. Uh, and that what happened is that our government had been taken over by a group of people known as neoconservatives. Well, I was a conservative, I thought, and, and who are these neoconservatives? Well, it turns out that they were Jews. And once again, we had this subversion from within by a group of people that you're never allowed to identify. And the relevance of that statement, it should be clear to everyone right now in light of what just happened to Kanye West. Kanye West uh, is part of uh, what we what I've called the Black Jewish Alliance. 
This began in 1913 when uh, Leo Frank, after the when Leo Frank Frank was lynched, and the Jews created uh, the uh, uh, Anti Defamation League. The Anti Defamation League is still at work today. These are the Jewish thought police that will ruin your career. They will ruin your career. If you don't believe me, uh, talk to Kanye West. Okay, you can be the richest black guy in the world. And if you take make one move, if you say one thing that they don't like, they will destroy you. And this they're going to do that as a lesson to everyone in this country. You take one step out of line and they will destroy you. Now, this is an intolerable situation, okay? And in order to deal with the situation back then, I had to go and define the word Jew because no one had defined it. We were, they were throwing around terms like anti-Semitism, which uh, is clear, uh, as Joe Sobern once said, an anti-Semite used to be someone who didn't like Jews, and now is someone Jews don't like. It became a, a completely meaningless term. It was a term that was created, weaponized to destroy anyone uh, who had the temerity to criticize Jews. I think that's what it is today. Okay. Uh, I had to go back. I had to sift through where did anti-Semitism come from? It was created in Germany in 1871 by a man by the name of Wilhelm Marr who was a revolutionary, uh, a veteran of the revolution of 1848, who uh, hated uh, religion uh, and did not want to uh, make use of the traditional religious vocabulary in dealing with Jews. And so he created a term that was based on race because that's what everyone was talking about in 1871. Darwin had become popular in England. Uh, it was a racial category that basically meant that there was something wrong with Jewish DNA. This uh, was an error. Uh, uh, it, it made no sense uh, from any uh, point of view that I could understand. Uh, you mentioned Arthur Kessler's book, The 13th Tribe. Uh, to begin with, uh, the, the Ashkenazi are not Semites, uh, so uh, they are a Turkic race. And so the DNA hypothesis doesn't uh, work. So what does work? I had to go back all the way to the beginning, and I saw the beginning at, as the time when Jesus Christ arrived on this earth. At this point, the Hebrews, who were God's chosen people, had to make a decision about uh, whether they were going to accept the Messiah or not. And this drama is described in the Gospels, in particular in the Gospel of St. John, where Jesus emphatically rejects the idea of Jewish DNA as having any significance. The Jews told Jesus they were uh, the seed of Abraham. And he said, uh, God doesn't need your DNA. He could create rocks. He could take rocks and turn the chosen people out of rocks. And so to think this is ridiculous, uh, what you need to be is a child. So it's not chemicals, it's children, it's acting human beings, you have to make this decision. And the Jews made the wrong decision. Not only did they reject Christ, they killed him. And that became the turning point in human history. At that point, the people who followed Jesus Christ became the children of Moses. And the people who called themselves the children of Moses became the enemies 
they became the St. Paul's words, the people who killed Christ and enemies of the entire human race. That is what they have been from then up till now. Uh, when they killed Christ, they rejected uh, the Logos incarnate. When you reject the Logos, which is the word that uh, St. John used repeatedly at the beginning of his gospel, uh, you are rejecting the order of the universe. Logos means language, it means rationality, it means what I just said, the order of the universe. When you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary, and that is what the Jews have been ever since. The immediate consequence of this was the destruction of the temple, which occurred about 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. At that point, the Jews had no way to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. They, they had no temple, they had no priesthood, and they had no sacrifice. And a rabbi at this point uh, asked to be was smuggled out of uh, Jerusalem in a shroud. He went to Titus, asked for a favor. He wanted to found a school. And that is the man who created what we now call Judaism, which is a religion that is younger than Christianity. This has nothing, next to nothing, to do with the Torah with the Old Testament, which is now incorporated into the Christian scriptures. The Jews were now involved in a debating society. They couldn't sacrifice uh, the debate, the name of the debating society or the codification of the deliberations of this debating society are known as the Talmud. The first edition came out in 300 uh, AD, second in 600 AD. That is the, that is the constitution of the Jewish people. The other consequence, the other serious consequence of this is that, uh, so the Jews became revolutionaries. This, the other serious consequence of this is that the Jews had no way to expiate guilt, uh, no animal sacrifice. And so what they had to do was come up with a way of dealing with guilt. We all have to deal with guilt because we all commit sin at some point. And the way that the Jews came up with dealing with guilt was projecting it on to the people they didn't like. And they became masters of this. And what we saw here over the 20th century was the fulfillment, the, the refinement of this technique into a science, which then got incorporated by, through American social engineering into the major narrative of the 20th century, which we know as the Holocaust narrative. That's where we are now. Anytime uh, it's been memorialized by that Jewish proverb, uh, the Jew cries out in pain when he strikes you. This is exactly the situation we are experiencing now with Kanye West. Blame the victim. Kanye West understood uh, finally coming to understand the Black-Jewish uh, alliance, which I describe in detail in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. He objected to it. He, he tried to uh, talk about it, and immediately the Jews attacked him, blaming the victim for what they had done. Basically, the proof that there is total Jewish control over the narrative is precisely what happened to Kanye West. And so, that point, bringing it up to date, is uh, where I think we should leave off and you begin your uh, discussion, the questions you have to ask. Sure. And, you know, Freedom Hub has provoked a lot of friends over the five years we've had this show. Uh, and certainly this uh, will provoke as well. And 
you know where the raise hand icon is under reactions. Um, let's uh, continue on from that early history. So Rome made Christianity the, the official religion around 300 AD, give or take. And the refugees from the temple destruction settled around the Mediterranean uh, with this, you know, adjusted version of Judaism with the Talmud. Um, and then, you know, you had the Inquisition. And then with, um, I like your chapters of your book on Luther and the Northern Europeans uh, change. It was very chaotic. Uh, the Jews were involved with that. Um, but right before the 1848 revolution, which really made America half German, you had Mendelssohn and other Jews in Germany reading Voltaire, Kant, Goethe, and the Enlightenment. And you have some good and bad things to say. There's a lot of violent counter-reaction to the Enlightenment uh, with the Hepa Parade massacre. But um, spend some time on that period of the 1700s before the 1848 revolution. It's a very interesting chapter in your book, you know, with Mendelssohn and the assimilation and the sense of hope uh, for getting beyond the Middle Ages, but ultimately it crashed down in the 1848 revolution. Is that something you can discuss for a bit? Sure, sure. What, what you saw with the uh, Enlightenment, uh, uh, crucial documents like uh, Lessing's play, Not on Devise, is a crucial uh, Jewish Enlightenment uh, document where basically you have a discussion of the, the three religions uh, led by Saladin and uh, a, a Jew and, uh, and a Christian. And they're trying to discuss which religion is the best religion. Is it Islam, is it Judaism, or is it Christianity? And he comes up with the parable of the ring, which is basically God created this ring to ensure that, uh, that anyone who possessed it had the true religion, but the ring has been lost. And so no one knows what the true religion is. This is the classic reaction to the Reformation uh, in Germany, where the Christian Protestants were killing Catholics and vice versa. We're tired of these religious wars. So let's pretend that nobody knows what the true religion is, and we'll create a culture based on that premise. That's the Enlightenment. Uh, the German Enlightenment uh, was basically formed by people like uh, Moses Mendelssohn and Lessing, and it was a kind of agnosticism that reflected the thinking around the time of the French Revolution. And so they tried to preserve that, but the, the spirit, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, or what Hegel would call the Geist, uh, does not stand still does not stand still. And if you think you can preserve it by saying we're going to limit it to the German Enlightenment as we, as Lessing understood it, uh, you're kidding yourself. And so what happened is that this spirit, this Jewish revolutionary spirit continued to, to move on and to fester uh, as it had at the beginning. The beginning, you had people like Solomon Maimon, uh, the SKP from darkest Lithuania who came to Berlin and was enlightened and liberated from all of that Talmudic tyranny that people were Jews were subjected to in the uh, in the shtetl where all these German Jews lived. And that seems great. Uh, but uh, can we stay at that point in history? 
let's just pretend that the world is going to stop. And that's the final example. We, we had this in America. You remember with the Fukuyama's end of history? It's perfect right now. Let's not change. Well, you don't have uh, a choice in the matter. And so the Jewish revolutionary spirit continued because of the Enlightenment seeping into the shtetl. It continued to have ferment among the younger generation who were growing up there, subjected to these new ideas. And that eventuated into two strains of revolutionary activity. One was Jewish nationalism, which became Zionism, which uh, really didn't happen until later in the 20th century. But the immediate uh, uh, group was the uh, Jewish internationalism, which came to be known as communism or specifically Bolshevism. And the Jews were struck with this, and we're going to proselytize, we're going to turn the Russian peasants into communists. And so they tried education, it failed miserably because no peasant is going to listen to a Jew. They turned him into the police. And at that point, the Jews became terrorists, uh, creating a group called Narodnaya Volia. And that is the group that eventually uh, succeeded in assassinating the czar. And at that point, uh, a Russian reaction broke out and the Russian Jews started moving west and so on and so forth. And eventually that group succeeded in taking over Russia when they became Bolsheviks. One of the people who uh, was involved in the assassination was, of the czar was uh, uh, Lenin's older brother. Lenin was immediately inducted when he went to the university. Lenin succeeded in bringing a group of people together who basically a group of Jews, mostly Jews together, who overthrew the uh, Russian Empire and killed the czar. At this point, uh, this was after World War I. At this point, these people had so much power uh, that they began to exert it in conquered Germany. And they took over both Berlin and Munich, where they created the Soviet Republic of Bavaria, creating a huge reaction. The, uh, the militia in Bavaria came and basically fought pitched battles in the streets of Munich and took back this country. I'm saying this is what happened, okay? You cannot, uh, you cannot jump off the train of history and pretend, and pretend that you're gonna hang suspended in midair. By this point, the German enlightenment that had created all of this narrative of assimilation into German culture, which was fantastically successful uh, in Germany up to World War I, as recounted in his book, Alos, uh, uh, a Amos Alon, I believe that's his name, wrote a book called It Didn't Have to Happen. And basically it was about the collapse of Jewish assimilation because the Jewish revolutionaries here had gone beyond assimilation at this point. And the Bolsheviks weren't interested in assimilating. The Jewish Bolsheviks weren't going to be content with assimilating to German culture anymore. They were going to take it over as Eugen Levine did in, uh, in Bavaria. And the reaction, the inevitable reaction was Hitler and the complete collapse of the idea of German assimilation. Nevertheless, uh, Dr. Jones, the, it didn't have to happen, I think is a thought a lot of folks have from your book uh, because of what you said of the success of the assimilation. So is it still possible? One question I had was, short of accepting the logos, is our creative hybrids um, allowed in your future? 
with logos. As a, if folks can't uh, accept Catholicism or Christ divinity or total logos, is there room in a more respectful society uh, for some variation of it, a la that successful German um, assimilation? Yeah, there always, there was. We had successful uh, assimilation, uh, successful Jewish assimilation in America. It was never without conflict. As soon as Jews got power in America, which they got first in the media, uh, and I'm talking specifically about Hollywood, there was immediately conflict uh, because the Jews are never content to just rest and leave well enough alone. They are obsessed, obsessed with bringing about revolutionary change. And the way they did it then was the, sub the subversion of the sexual morality of the United States of America through Hollywood films. Okay, and that caused a reaction. And the reaction was basically uh, the, the, the Catholic, the Protestants failed. There are three ethnic groups, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. The Protestants failed. At this point, the Catholics stepped up to the plate and they successfully they created death boycotts against Hollywood. And they successfully succeeded in bringing the Jews in Hollywood within the boundaries of uh, uh, moral and social morality in the United States of America. It was called the Production Code. And for 31 years, we had what I would call peaceful coexistence between these three ethnic groups, at least on the uh, cultural front. The Jews were never happy. They were never happy with this arrangement. They, all, they, they are never happy. Let's just put it in a general statement. They're never happy with some type of static situation. And so they rebelled against it in 1965. They broke the production code with their Hollywood, with their Holocaust porn film called The, the, uh, the Porn Broker. And at that point, uh, they started their march through the institutions, leading to the point where they now control our foreign policy. And they have gotten us involved in a suicidal war in the Ukraine. So yes, it could have happened. It did happen, but they they are the ones who broke the broke the agreement, and that's why we're in the mess we're in now. As a conservative, how would you solve this? As a libertarian, and you quote Murray Rothbard against the neocons in your book, it seems fairly simple to some of us. Uh, first, end the Fed to cut off the control of the banksters on money and credit, and well, that's that's the big one. If you separate us from the international financial stream, you allow a nationality kind of to fix their own house. Um, do, you, do you agree with that as a start? And where do you go from there? I, I stated it differently in my book on economics, uh, Barren Metal. The crucial issue is usury. The main th force driving Jewish political power in this country is usury. Okay, interest on loans. Uh, that has to be, that's, that's, uh, 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 it used to be illegal, okay, until 1981 when the Fed got into the usury business, uh, and now uh, it is uh, a dead letter. It has to be brought back because over this period of time, as soon as you release the control, the controls on usury, uh, you're contributing to the uh, rise of Jewish political power because that's the base. It's always been their base. And so I would say, yes, uh, we have to deal with usury. Uh, we have to deal. We're, we're, we're dealing with it whether we like it or not, because now we have this uh, federal program that Biden has introduced, basically called loan forgiveness for student loans. So you have to deal with this sooner or later. 
the best way to deal with it is at the beginning and eliminate usury from the from our economic system. That's the solution to this problem. Okay. Um, anyone else want to raise their hand and ask a question? Well, there's a lot of mention in the chat uh, going back and forth. Uh, Bob, go ahead. I've uh, been paying interest all my life. How would you uh, run a system of business? Why would anybody make a loan unless they got a return on interest? I don't understand the right. use of usury here. No, no one would make a loan because you shouldn't make loans. If you want to invest in a business, buy stock. The whole crucial issue here is shared risk. If you are not willing to share risk, you don't deserve a return on your investment. So all of the, this is what happened uh, in, in, with the uh, creation of the Fed. Okay, at this point, I think it was around 1910, they did a survey of American industrial power at the dawn of the great, uh, uh, the, what became the greatest industrial power in the world. And they found out that Jew, the Jew, Jewish bankers in New York found out that 90% of all capital improvement was done through profits. This was intolerable to the Jews on Wall Street. And that's why they wanted to intervene and create the Fed so that your business would have to borrow money uh, to uh, improve, to expand the factory rather than issuing stock or something where there's shared risk. Interesting. Um, I, ahead, I, would, I would also go back to um, income tax. Um, Generally, with a low or no income tax, uh, internal funds can be generated that eliminate the need, uh, in many cases, uh, for, uh, for borrowing. Right. Right. That's exactly the situation as it existed in America in 1910, when we had a very prosperous country. The history of period after that time, including the income tax, which came after uh, the Fed, was basically tried, constantly trying to pay off unrepayable loans. That's always the problem. Again, I, I cover this in uh, Barron Metal. The problem with a floating loan is it becomes unrepayable after about 60 to 70 years. This is exactly what happened to the Bank of England, which was created by the Whigs in 1692. Uh, by the uh, 70 years later, it's uh, 1763, and suddenly uh, the uh, English realize they're bankrupt. They can't pay off this loan. And so Lord Townsend goes to Adam Smith, says, How, what are we going to do? He says, I know. We'll have the colonies pay it. And that led to the American Revolution. It always, it's always the same story. It's always going to end up unrepayable. Uh, another example is the, uh, the uh, Habsburg family. Uh, in, in Europe, oh, the greatest uh, rulers in Europe at the time in the 16th century, uh, in 14, they got their first loan from the Fuggers, which is a Catholic banking house, exceptional, uh, an exception at this time. Uh, in 1494, I believe, 1492, Columbus discovered America. 1496, the Habsburgs own every gold and silver mine in the New World. And in 1560, 1550, around that time, the Habsburgs go bankrupt. How can you go bankrupt when you own every gold and silver mine in the new world? Well, one answer is English pirates, but the real answer is that 
every floating loan becomes unrepayable after 70 years. There's not enough gold or silver in the universe to pay off a floating loan. And that's the problem with usury. And that's the problem we have to confront with this economy. Also, it's the main thing driving the Jewish question and Jewish power over our economy. Just ask Sheldon Adelson, ask people like that where they get their power. That's the story that needs to be exposed here. Um, what about the Rothschilds and the banksters? I don't see much of that in your Jewish revolutionary spirit book, but I, I guess maybe it's more in your barren metal book or. Yeah. Yeah. I cover it in barren metal. Okay. It's a, cr a crucial moment here in barren, barren metal. And basically we're talking about the uh, Napoleon now marching across Europe, coming to the German principalities who are all divided all week. And the Prince of Hesse Castle uh, basically comes to Nathan, uh, you know, Amschel Rothschild, who is uh, doing uh, lending money at usurious interest rates from the Judengasse in Frankfurt. He says, this is my fortune. I don't want uh, Napoleon to get it. You keep it safe and I'll be back. Well, he sent it to his son, Nathan, who was in London, and Nathan bet the farm. He bet the Prince of Hesse Castle's fortune on the consul, and he, he, he made out like a bandit because he had information that Napoleon was going to lose, bet on the consul, and so he made a killing. At that point, uh, Nathan started lending to British aristocrats, and over the course of the 19th century, all of these British aristocrats who wanted to build those, build, build those big fancy mansions in the country all got in debt to the Jews and they all lost their property. The, the, the classic example of this was the Churchill family. Randolph Churchill ended up in debt to Natty Rothschild, 70,000 pounds he owed him. Rothschild forgave the debt to the family when Randolph died, but he got landed Winston Churchill as his pawn. And Winston Churchill was a pawn of Jewish interest ever, ever after that moment with catastrophic effects for European history, beginning with World War I. That's the story of the Rothschilds and their influence over politics uh, in Europe. But just one other thing I'd like to add here. Uh, Balzac is walking through the Paris and he sees James Rothschild walking arm in arm with Heinrich Heine, the German Jewish revolutionary. And he says, voila to l'esprit juif. This is the Jewish spirit. It's two, it's two parts, the Jewish banker and the Jewish revolutionary. And they work hand in hand because they walk arm in arm. So it's Jacob Schiff and Trotsky. We could go down the road. That is why I wrote both the Jewish revolutionary spirit and Baron Metal. Before Jimmy asked your question, uh, is World War One sort of the turning point where everything was lost? If America could have been kept out of World War One, or and even before then, if Wilson could have been prevented from starting the Fed, the income tax, and popular election of senators, could we have kept that 19th century momentum going in a more sober direction? Absolutely. History is nothing but tragedy. And the tragedy was that this lust for empire, the preliminary tragedy was called the great rapprochement where uh, Americans, uh, unlike Andrew Jackson, who bore a scar on his forehead from a British sword, 
uh, the Anglo-Wasp, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon Anglo elite in America decided they had more in common with English aristocrats like the syphilitic uh, Randolph Churchill than they did with American citizens from Italy and Poland or Germany and Ireland. That's the tragedy. That's what led to this collaboration. The Jews were behind the entry into World War I, uh, and the, the same thing happened again with World War II. This is the tragedy. We never should have gotten it. We never should have embarked on this road of empire. Now we are faced, we are paying the bill. Now we are at the brink of nuclear war and we're going to watch the painful conclusion of the American empire uh, uh, dying on the steps of uh, Eurasia. One last follow-up, Jim, before you ask, can the make, it, make America great again movement kind of fueled by the terrible tyranny over the past couple of years and you know the desire to go after the deep state indirectly can that bring some reprieve from this kind of globalist threat yeah the solution is what it was in the 1930s it's called america first america first was isolationist america first was basically backing American manufacturers. The headquarter of America first was uh, Detroit. This became a civil war uh, between Detroit and New York, between Main Street and Wall Street. So the solution is always there. That's what the solution is right now. The man who channeled this was Donald Trump. He channeled America first, and I voted for him because I said, that's what we need right now. Well, guess what we got? Uh, we got Israel first as our foreign policy, even in spite of the fact that he was doing us was doing actual things to try and build up American industry. So even with half a loaf, it was better. But again, the thing that wrecked Donald Trump was the Jewish question. He thought he could buy off the Jews. You can't do that. If anybody proved that it is it is Donald Trump, the most Jewish president in the history. And now they're calling him an anti-Semite. Figure that one out. And why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Yeah. Because because he said something about on on Twitter or some uh, 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 YouTube uh, video where he said that American Jews are not grateful. Israeli Jews are grateful. The American Jews should be more grateful to me because I did more for Israel than any other president in the United States of America. Well, that's true. He is absolutely right. But don't expect gratitude from the Jews. Don't expect it. Read the book first, and then you you won't expect it. Jim. Yeah. Uh, wow. Great talk. And I'm Jewish. <laughs> so, well, I was Jewish. I mean, I was raised Jewish and born Jewish. And, and I think there's a couple of points here I want to bring out. Um, and that is, I think there's a difference like between maybe the Kazarian Jews uh, versus Ashkenazi, and, or maybe that's the same group. But it's also a matter of bloodline. I, I kind of feel like I want to take this up to a higher level uh, and involve Satan, if you will. And I think a lot of these, uh, the, the Jews, the Kazarian Jews, shall we say, uh, have been compromised or captured, kind of like our agencies. It's the same thing. Um, if you go back, you look at history, you look at uh, possessions, you look at a lot of the, the things in the Catholic Church. I mean, exorcisms were common. And today, I mean, I, I filmed the talk by Dr. Hal Putoff. He is probably the top physicist in the United States involved in 
a lot of things, black projects, secret projects, dealing with extraterrestrials. He has been, he told me his group has been hired by um, the government or somebody at the Pentagon, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the Kazarian Jews, to um, talk about, to start creating stories about other being, life on other planets, to introduce it to the American, to the world, to the American public, certainly. And part of that is to bring, uh, to talk about the existence of these beings called jinn. Uh, it's in the Quran, maybe other places. Jinn can be like, that's where genie comes from. Right. These jinn beings, right, can be obviously negative, like demons or whatever, or positive. So all of this is, is kind of start coming out. And as I see it from like just the normal guy, though, look, I, I looked at, I had a fight with my rabbi. I said, okay, that's enough. This is all, B, a lot of this is BS. I think a lot of the Bible is BS. Who knows what's been written? And I read about, you know, the uh, Nicaea, whatever, 1392, a lot of the changes to the Bible, books are taken out, stuff's put in. It's a matter of control. Read a great book. I think it's The Gods of Eden. Was that it? Um, you might remember. But basically that tracks a lot of the religious be uh, beginnings to extraterrestrial involvement. Yeah, that's why I'm on this show on Thursday. Okay. But the fact is, it again, it deals with control. I think we are at that point. I think you're right in everything you said. Uh, this is a spiritual battle. I mean, it's not like the Jews are, a, that's a name, but it's these beings, let's call them uh, Khazar or Khazarian or the jinn, saw this group as a way with maybe because, and Charles, you, you understand, we both, uh, I, I traveled with and did some filming with Zachariah Sitchin for a number of years, who was one of the world's greatest translators of ancient languages, the, the uh, Hittite and Arcadian and so on. And he brought all this out and said that essentially, um, you know, there are other influences on our planet. And as I see it, uh, and it was in the bloodlines, the DNA that they manipulated with certain uh, groups of, of, uh, of humans, certain in our group. So you have, and you have different players at different levels. And I think certainly uh, even Steiner goes into something like this. I could, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's relevant, the archons, and he talks about the eighth sphere and where this all comes into play. And I think this is the time like we're living in right now that's kind of come to a head, that good versus evil, uh, however you want to look at it. And it's it's not what's in the Bible. It's not um, it's, it's not intellectual as much as this is a time we need to go into our hearts and really use our creative. We're all expressions of God or this unified field or whatever you want to call it. And when we can go, we have that power to really help create the world we want to see. And so to me, this is a, it's a real time, a great time. There's so much chaos. That means there's also that opportunity for coherence. Like it's, it's much easier in a sense. Uh, that's another story. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. I'd even read recently, like the Rothschilds were Satanist or were worshiping Satan. I'd seen some okay. things on like that. And I okay. To, yeah. But, yeah. So first of all, there, the CIA playbook is already there. If you want to know what it is, there's a movie. And the movie is called Independence Day. And it came out in 1999. And it's basically about how a Jew and a Negro saved the world from aliens. 
and it's got lots of pictures of Israeli flags. And the whole point of this is to unite the country against some type of opponent rather than allow the country to see the opponent that is within the country. Now, if you want to go back to Jin, uh, Jin, uh, that's uh, what we uh, Catholics call angels. And the fact of the matter is that uh, by the time of the Enlightenment, angels disappeared from the cosmos, thanks to Sir Isaac Newton. Okay, and that created a vacuum that has become intolerable and, and nature abhors a vacuum and the way that vacuum has been filled is with UFOs, unidentified flying objects, aliens who want to come down and help us or harm us. This is a pop culture attempt to fill the vacuum that was created when angels were banished from the universe. Okay, now to get to the Jew Jewish identity is important here. This is the whole reason I wrote this book. What is Jewish identity? Okay, what was it up till the time of Jesus Christ? They were God's chosen people. Does that mean they were united? No. What's the first thing the Jews, the Hebrews did when they left Egypt? They started worshiping the golden calf. What is the golden calf? The golden calf is Moloch. How do you worship Moloch? You offer your children up in sacrifice, human sacrifice. So guess what? Uh, what are we talking about here? There was a, a, a division in this people from the beginning. And Jesus Christ came and he said to the Jews, either you accept me, uh, you don't accept me, your father is Satan. So he said it. Jesus Christ said it. It's not, it's not something out there. What is the essence of uh, Satan worship? It is offering up children. So what I'm saying is, as soon as the Jews came out after Roe versus Wade and said that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value, they immediately identified themselves as Moloch worshipers. That's who these people are. That's not a group you want to belong to, okay? And the descendants, the other people are the descendants to this day. I am a child of Moses because I accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's, I think, the ultimate division. And that's what we need to talk about now. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, all right. Any uh, other questions? Well, with that, uh, Dr. Jones, why don't you uh, leave a last comment and how folks can reach you, I guess, at culturewars.com. Uh, uh, and we want to thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, yes, all of my books are available at culturewars.com. Do not go to any search engine, okay? Do not. You'll never find me because the Jews have suppressed all mention of my name. It's just like uh, the Bible. The Jews refused to accept the parents of the man born blind because they threatened to expel from the synagogue anyone who said that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Go to culturewars.com. You can buy the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. The second edition, which is not what you showed there, has new material about the Armenian genocide, the Aryan heresy, and a lot of other stuff. Uh, you can also buy a copy of Baron Metal, which talks about the other side of this Jewish revolutionary spirit, the Rothschild side, as opposed to the Heinrich Heiner Trotsky uh, side of the thing. All of these things were available. I think we have reached a point where we cannot avoid this discussion anymore. 
When this book came out in 2007, I was sentenced to death by the, the new Sanhedrin, the ADL, the SPLC came out against me, and I'm still alive. I'm still here. If you want, if you, it, this, it proves to me that this is something, a discussion that has to take place before the same group of people leads us into catastrophe in the Ukraine, where we can't avoid this discussion anymore. So please buy a copy of the book and let's hope we can continue this discussion later on. Well, we do have a last question from Guy. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just curious how, how you would explain people like Dennis Prager and his following, because he's Jewish. So just wondering what you think of, you know, there are Jews out there that uh, there, are, there, 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 there are all sorts of Jews. There are Jews. I have Jewish supporters. Uh, Yehuda Littman, an Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn, writes letters to the editor of Culture Wars magazine saying, I am I am a better Jew because I read Culture Wars. That's an Orthodox Jew. I don't know why he doesn't become uh, a Catholic. I think everyone should become a Catholic. That's not my business. That's God's business. Okay. And I'm saying, as long as you're willing to collaborate with Logos, as long as you're willing to be a rational creature, then uh, I, I want to. I think you should be part of this movement, just for the sake of the Jews alone. They are heading toward disaster, and they don't know. They don't understand how they are bringing about the very anti-Semitism that they're afraid of. That's that's the the crucial issue right now. That's what we need to uh, circumvent before it's too late. What about, I'm going to jump in. I see one of, uh, one of our uh, viewers was uh, Tyler is talking about Zionists. I mean, can we just classify these Jews as the extremists, the Zionists, as a, as a faction, just like there are in other, other cultures? Sure. Zionism is Jewish nationalism. But then you also have Jewish internationalism, which is called communism. And these are the two Jewish ideologies that have dominated the 20th century. You know, now it seems that Zionism is on the rise, but in the 1930s, uh, everyone was talking about communism. These are two ideologies that have dominated Jewish thought in the 20th century. So let, let me ask you one thing. The, uh, as you probably know, with the, uh, the clot shot, you know, the jab that's been going out, um, uh, the COVID-19, Israel is probably, you know, one of, if not the most vaccinated country in the world. And they really pushed, they're pushing the passport, they're pushing multiple boosters and shots. Why would they do this to their fellow Jews? What's going on? That's, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. And I, all I can do is fall back on people like uh, Israel Shamir, who, who converted to uh, or the Russian Orthodoxy during the uh, the 1967 war. He's there in a in a foxhole with a rusty gun that probably won't work, and the artillery barrage is heading toward him. And he suddenly realized, "Hey, I'm a pawn. The big Jews move the little Jews around on this chessboard like pawns." That's what Solomon Wyman said. I think that's that's the that's the explanation here. The big Jew Borla made a lot of money. There are instances like the Levon affair where basically the Mossad is ready to kill Jews to create panic so that they all move to Israel. So you are, he said, what he said, the Jew is, the little Jew is the human shield that is used to advance the big Jews agenda. I think that's the best way to put it. And I think yeah. uh, uh, Pfizer is an example of that. 
how uh, provocative we have been. And uh, it's an important topic to discuss. And a lot of folks will be uh, uh, angry uh, or curious to explore more. Dr. Jones, I can't thank you enough. Like I said, this is what the book I found on my best friend's night table when we cleaned out his house after he passed away. And Kanye West is not apologizing and people want to discuss this. And so thanks, Dr. Jones. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.